A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom. More rights or fewer? I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. He may be 80, but he's running again. The president bidding for a second term is a grizzled Senate veteran, a man who'd served as vice president to a younger and more charismatic man, who must have thought his ambition of reaching the top job had gone, but who had an unlikely final act. He holds together a fractious party, proving surprisingly successful in muscling progressive legislation through Congress. He's also a man prone to be dewy-eyed about the last best hope of Earth, to say he's fighting for the soul of America. I'm talking, of course, about Joe Biden, but most of this could have been said half a century ago about another Democratic president approaching the end of his first full term. They were different kinds of men in many ways, yet there are striking parallels between Joe Biden and Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. The great society asked not how much, but how good. Not only how fast we're going, but where we're headed. All things seem possible to Americans. There seemed to be almost nothing beyond the capacity of the United States to accomplish in the material realm, but hey, even in the kind of spiritual and aesthetic realm as well. Biden's real strength, if you look back at his career, is he has an uncanny ability to find the exact dead center of a Democratic caucus and stake out a position there. Is there anything close to Great Society 2.0? If we calculate the degree of difficulty here, I think Biden has actually done more in this moment than LBJ did with the tremendous moment he had uh, in 65. But there's one big difference. LBJ didn't run again. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. On March the 31st, 1968, at the end of a televised address about the Vietnam War, The president shocked viewers by announcing that he would not seek nor would he accept the Democratic nomination for president. It was an astonishing moment. A man who, through a mixture of vision, determination, ego, bullying and good luck, had reached the Oval Office and wielded immense power at home and abroad, was voluntarily stepping down. Are there lessons for Biden? from LBJ's truncated presidency, and how, 55 years later, can we assess Johnson's political legacy. So joining me to talk about LBJ and his legacy, and perhaps some lessons for Joe Biden and the present day, are Kevin Cruz, the Princeton historian, author of many books on post-war US political history, most recently Myth America, uh, which he co-authored with his colleague Julian Zelitzer, and Mark Lawrence, the director of the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, and the author most recently of The End of Ambition, The US and the Third World. Kevin, let's start with what kind of a person LBJ was. I mean, who, who was LBJ and where did he come from? Well, LBJ was somebody who uh, came out of poverty, came out of uh, uh, back corners of, uh, of rural Texas, 
through um, kind of a hard scrabble existence uh, and kind of kept those lessons with him. Uh, there's a reason, uh, say, education was important to him because he had been a, a teacher in a poor, largely Latino school. There was a reason he uh, knew the power of government because he'd experienced it both as somebody watching the New Deal from the outside and then as a New Deal congressman. So he was somebody who uh, who really thought that there was a considerable growth in his life uh, and that that growth could be shared by the American people. Mark, he wanted to get into politics. Why did he see that as yeah. the route out, as the way to change his circumstances? Why was politics the answer? Well, his father had been a politician, uh, a state legislator in Texas. You know, there are these famous stories of LBJ literally sitting under the dining room table, listening to his father and all all the local chieftains in his his part of uh, the hill country of Texas, you know, talking about the issues of the day. And this seems to have grabbed LBJ's fascination from an early point. But I think as well, you know, you said that LBJ came from poverty, and I think that's that's almost right. I would go a step further and say that he came from a world that hovered always on the edge of poverty. Right. His family had had periods of relative mm. prosperity and were actually some of the bigger deals in town at, at certain points. Mm -hmm. But he also understood what it was like to lose that position of privilege, to to lose that that prosperity because you know, the cotton prices were so volatile, right? And that really had a lot to do with how well one could live in the hill country of Texas in that era. So he was keenly aware of the fragility of 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 of, of, of prosperity and um and therefore very much like his father, um, anxious to embrace a style of politics that would promise to help ordinary people. Um, gain greater control over their lives and insulate themselves to some degree from that ever-present danger of catastrophe that could befall yeah. them, you know, if it was a bad year with drought or too much rain or, you know, uh, in, in other words, forces over which an individual exerted no control could ruin one's life. And I think that if you bear that kind of mentality in mind, you can see some through lines through LBJ's career. Um, he was first and foremost concerned with using the instruments of government to to help people protect themselves from uh, dangers over which they really had no control. Security. Exactly. Provide them exactly. a security. That's so interesting. Yeah. So not actually losing your home, but always worrying that the next month your mortgage might be foreclosed exactly. or whatever. So exactly. that sort of pre precarious state, which is why for him, Franklin Roosevelt was the guy who politically he, I guess, wanted to emulate or outshine exactly, in the end. Exactly. And he clearly imprinted himself on FDR, right down to using the initials. The reason he talks about him being LBJ is he wants people to talk about him the way they talk about FDR. Uh, and he refers to him, uh, I believe, as his, uh, his daddy, is a phrase that he often uses to describe FDR, uh, because he does see him as, uh, as, as somebody who has shaped his politics, certainly was responsible for his own entry into politics uh, when when uh, uh, Johnson comes in, swept in on the coattails of, of FDR in the mid-30s. Uh, he understands the power uh, and the possibilities posed by the New Deal, uh, and he really wants to uh, kind of keep that alive. And when people think of FDR, when I think of FDR, and probably the listeners have got this, might have this image in their head, you think of this guy who's very tall. He's probably wasn't as tall as I think of him as being. Mm -hmm. And you see him, there are these famous series of photographs of the Johnson treatment, right. of this tall, you know, really assertive alpha male masculinity kind of dominating other 
men. And he was kind of obsessed. I mean, he was kind of obsessed with his bodily parts oh, as yeah. well, wasn't he? I mean, that's not all made up. I mean, there was, you know, this image of him as being crude, of kind of taking meetings with him, sitting on the toilet, mm-hmm. of kind of dropping his trousers, inviting the press to watch him swim naked in the Whitehead swimming pool. I mean, what was, what was all that about? How is that relevant? Is it relevant to kind of understanding how he rose to power and how he, how he saw power? I think there is. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of earthiness to him, which I think speaks to his, his kind of humble background and his kind of macho sensibility uh, that I think really worked uh, politically for him. Uh, there's also, I think, an awareness on his part that that side of his personality put other people ill at ease uh, and was a way to kind of push back against the effete Harvard crowd that he always had on his mind and, and, and a way to show them really who's boss. You know, uh, someone might think that they are, uh, uh, they had risen to kind of the, the highest ranks of, uh, of academia or the business world. But if the president is forcing you to stand there while he talks to you with his pants around his ankles, that shows you who's really in charge. And I think that was a, what a, a lot of LBJ's so-called treatment was. It was to remind people uh, who who the boss was. I'd encourage our listeners to to Google LBJ orders pants. <laughs> yes, uh, and 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 watch the YouTube video of a recording of him talking to his tailor and insisting that he gives him an extra couple of inches in the crotch um, because otherwise his pants are like sitting on a barbed wire. Wearing those pants are like sitting on a barbed wire fence. I think that 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 gives you a sense of him. But in fairness, I don't think listening, remembering that phone call, I don't think he's actually using any particularly unpleasant <laughs> language. That is true. But you do get a sense that you do get a sense of the man. And when you talk about the Harvard elite crowd, you, you, you've got to have in mind the Kennedys. Oh, there, absolutely. Right? John, Johnson had been, he was elected at a very young age, and he was, through the 1950s, he was the, the Senate majority leader. I mean, the the volume of the massive biography by Robert Caro, who's like the, the you know, the guy mm-hmm. who's written about every moment, every page of Johnson's <laughs> life that deals with the, with that period is called the master of the Senate. Right. And, you know, the, the, the famous thing that we think of when we think about Johnson in that role is... That his modus operandi was, you know, make sure you've got the votes, you count the votes. The first rule of politics is counting. Mm-hmm. You don't let anything go to the floor until you absolutely right. know you're going to win it. You know, so it's that kind of iron grip mm-hmm. on the legislative agenda, knowing all the ins and outs, knowing all the procedural rules, just just really maximizing every lever you can pull. So he was a man who had extraordinary levels of power on Capitol Hill. And this was, of course, a period when the Democrats were, uh, you know, were, were the dominant party. Mm-hmm. And because of the Southern uh, white Democratic bloc, there was a kind of near permanent Democratic majority in both houses of Congress in this period. So he was he was he was king of all he surveyed on Capitol Hill. He ran for president in 1960. And of course, he loses mm-hmm. the nomination, the Democratic nomination to this, you know, effete Harvard guy who was born with a silver spoon. And one of his, his inferiors. Hand. Junior senator from Massachusetts. Yeah. So question for you, Kevin. Why did he accept, when Kennedy won the nomination, why did Johnson give up the power of his Senate vote to become vice president? Why would he do that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it was that he saw that, uh, that he'd done as much as he could, uh, I think, in the Senate and was ready to move on to new challenges. And I think he was convinced... Uh, by Kennedy, but there would be something of a true partnership here. Um, uh, the way in which the the vice presidency had sort of risen in prominence throughout the 1950s, uh, with with Nixon taking on a, a slightly bigger role, but 
but uh, but Kennedy uh, suggested that there were going to be things that, that Johnson would do, and, and there certainly were. You know, the space program, uh, taking a prominent role on civil rights. Uh, uh, there were a lot of things in which Johnson actually was involved. And so there is an obvious Biden parallel here, isn't there? So uh, an older, did he kind of imagine he was going to play a kind of mentoring role to this kind of younger guy who wasn't as experienced in the ways of Washington, just as Biden that was how Biden thought the yeah. dynamic was going to work with Obama. But, you know, Biden was supposed to said, I want to be the last the, the last man in the room when decisions are made. Yeah. Um, it, w- was that what was in LBJ's mind when he came into the White House's VP in 1961? And, and it, was that how it worked out? I think that was very much what was in his mind. It's very much not how it worked out. Uh, he really did feel that he'd been, uh, again, not as much as, as some previous vice presidents. You have the famous story of, of Harry Truman not being brief on what was going on with the atomic bomb when he was FDR's vice president during World War II, uh, kind of being totally frozen out. It wasn't to that level, but he did certainly uh, resent the way in which the Kennedys, and not just John F. Kennedy, but his brother Robert F. Kennedy, who was attorney general, really kind of sidelined him on a lot of issues. And they gave him things to do, but he was also uh, outside the loop in a lot of things. And is that just basically because they saw him as a kind of Texas hick? They didn't take him seriously. They didn't rate him intellectually. Yeah. They didn't value his political skills. Yeah. And, and there have been bad blood between them in the, in the Senate. They've been rivals in a lot of ways. And, and I think there was, a, again, a sense, just as we talked about Johnson wanting people to know who was boss, uh, I think the Kennedys wanted Johnson to know uh, who was the boss now. And it was a, a different relationship than they had in the Senate. The RAI is Oxford's Centre for the Study of America and its place in the world. We exist to support world-leading research across the disciplines of history, politics and literature, and we run a packed programme of public events. For example, on the 18th of May, we have the brilliant Civil War historian Ed Ayres talking about federalism. On the 22nd of May, we've got the leading US pollster Frank Luntz talking about what will happen in US politics in 2024. And on the 3rd of June, we've got a symposium featuring Annette Gordon-Reed, Linda Kerber and dozens of other top-notch US historians discussing the state of the field and many other events as well. For more details, go to rai.ox.ac.uk or follow us on Twitter and sign up for our weekly newsletter. So on the morning of the 22nd of November 1963, LBJ, you know, was was trailing around literally in the car behind the president on this presidential visit to Dallas, Texas. I mean, he had to be there because Texas was his home state. But there must you kind of imagine there must have been a sense in which at that point LBJ thought his political career had peaked. Um, the vice presidency wasn't turning out to be much. You know, he'd given up this role in the Senate where he'd exerted real power. And then, obviously, um, we all know what, what happened next on that uh, late morning in uh, Dallas. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know... Uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. And by whatever it was, by half past 12, one o'clock in the afternoon, LBJ had been sworn in on Air Force Mm -hmm. One as president. So it was the most dramatic circumstances imaginable um, in which to come into office. And can you just 
sketch out for us then, Kevin. I mean, what was in his intray? I mean, yeah. what were what were the issues that were confronting him when he got to the White House that afternoon? Well, a lot of things. I mean, as he as he said later on, you know, everything that was on his desk when he became president had been on his desk since the New Deal, uh, when 1937, when he got to Congress. Uh, you know, um, um, civil rights, uh, aid education, anti-poverty legislation. All the things that were the unfinished business left over from his hero, FDR. Exactly right. Yeah, the, the New Deal had done a considerable amount, but it had left certain corners of American society untouched. So Social Security had been a huge advance in terms of providing uh, retirement pensions for the elderly. They still lacked any health care, right? And something that uh, liberals had tried to do uh, time and time again uh, from the early 20th century, certainly through FDR and Truman, who tried and failed. Uh, and LBJ was determined to try to get uh, to try to get that. Civil rights had long been left on the margins, uh, I think largely as a result of the fact that FDR knew that he needed those Southern segregationists in uh, Congress to get things done, and they threatened to destroy everything if he moved on civil rights. So he left that untouched. So there were a lot of things left undone. And he knew uh, that he had to craft an agenda. But he also, I think, recognized quite clearly that he had an opportunity here. And this is maybe a fundamental difference between LBJ and Biden is the way in which they entered office. LBJ enters on the uh, heels of uh, an assassination, which makes John F. Kennedy a martyr. And as uh, LBJ later says, everything he'd ever learned in the history books taught him that martyrs have to die for causes. And John Kennedy had died, but his cause wasn't clear. And this actually leaves a great opportunity for LBJ to kind of craft what that uh, memorial is going to be to John F. Kennedy. The problem was uh, Kennedy and most of his attention had been devoted to the Cold War. Uh, But the Cold War didn't need to be, didn't have to be a martyr's cause. The country was already committed to it. So instead, LBJ kind of scoured through the things uh, that JFK had been uh, considering and found two issues uh, that he wanted to pull out. One was the Civil Rights Bill, which was installed before Congress. And he tells Congress in his first uh, address to the nation as president, that nothing would more honor President Kennedy's memory than the swift passage of the civil rights program for which he fought so hard. He didn't really fight so hard, uh, but LBJ makes that the cause. The second one is an anti-poverty program, which is still in the it's uh, kind of a experimental pilot stage uh, early on uh, in the uh, the Kennedy administration, which becomes the the war on poverty. Uh, and so he he seizes on those two issues and makes them kind of the way to honor Kennedy, and that becomes the heart of his agenda now. The Democratic Party in the 1960s, by the time Johnson becomes president, is, as it always is, a coalition of very different forces. Can you kind of sketch out where the tensions lay within the Democratic Party and how Johnson tried to hold this coalition together? (laughs) Absolutely. It was a challenge, but I don't think you can understand the power and influence of the Democratic Party in those decades without understanding what a broad coalition it was. It was the what is sometimes called the New Deal Coalition or the Roosevelt Coalition that gets established in the 1930s and really persists thereafter all the way down to, you know, you can date it in different places, but 1968 or so. And that coalition consists of, so... The White South. It consisted of Northern ethnics, that is to say the children of the Irish Americans, the immigrants, the vast number of of immigrants who had come to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, this huge wave of immigration, 
that um, you know uh, transformed the the population, especially of the northern industrial cities. So you know the the white heart of Detroit and Chicago and Columbus and you know the great cities of the Midwest were also very strong loyal supporters of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party also was increasingly uh, finding traction with minorities, with African Americans in particular. Now that 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 identification did was not nearly as strong as it would become in the 1960s and 1970s, but already with the New Deal, you can see tendencies in that direction. Uh, Intellectuals uh, also tended to gravitate toward the Democratic Party. So if you think about it, there's a lot of sort of odd bedfellows here, right? Uh, Most especially um, uh, Northern um, uh, liberals and Southern whites, right? And this would become the line of fracture that would really crack the Democratic Party apart in the in the 1960s, in the Johnson period, in fact. Um, it's, it's one of the oddities of the Johnson presidency that he was president at the high point of this, the effectiveness of this New Deal coalition and in the moment of its crack up. And some of the decisions he took as president helped to contribute to that crack No up. question about it. So on the face of it, here is a southern white man who grew up in a segregated society, who was elected by an all-white electorate, who in private, as we know from the tapes that were recorded in the White House, the same taping system that was later to be so consequential under his following presidency, we know that uh, LBJ used racial epithets, used the N-word in private, and yet he was the man who went before Congress and gave the most incredible, passionate speech using, bringing to the fore all that kind of masculine alpha male certainty (laughs) and determination, but also bringing to bear a kind of religious mission to demand that Congress passed the Civil Rights Act and used the words, and we shall overcome. I mean, Mark, is that a paradox? How do we resolve that paradox? White Southern guy pleading yeah. with Congress, demand not pleading, demanding, insisting that Congress pass the Civil Rights Act. Look, LBJ was an enormously complicated person. As, as Bill Moyers famously said on one occasion, he was 13 of the most interesting people I'd ever met. <laughs> and I think he had within him both that compassionate man who understood poverty, who understood at least in its basic form, the, the what racial injustice looked like and felt like. And yet he was also someone who could very much speak in the language of Southern segregation, who understood how to uh, how, how to use that politics to his advantage. And you noted the irony of Lyndon Johnson being a white Southerner and embracing civil rights. The other one who does it is Harry Truman, who'd also grown up in the Jim Crow South. And I think there's something to that, the fact that both of them sort of had the the credibility with white Southerners as one of their own to kind of push this thing. Like Nixon going to China. Exactly right, yeah. Kevin, in any kind of reckoning of LBJ, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 are going to have to be right up there, aren't they, really? I mean, mean, how would you kind of sum up the significance um, of those two pieces of legislation in American history? Uh, I think they're difficult to sum up, just given how... uh, totally significant they were in terms of remaking the American landscape. I mean, the Civil Rights Act was the most uh, aggressive federal action on the behalf of racial minorities since the Civil War. Uh, The Voting Rights Act is something that 
uh, I think many scholars argue today, is really when America truly becomes a, a real democracy. Uh, it is extended to uh, to all of its citizens. And the Voting Rights Act, just to underline this point, is is a piece of legislation that gives effectively gives a federal government the the power to intervene on the ground in the South or wherever is necessary, but it's in the South in order to ensure that the vote is open to any to everyone, no matter their yeah. race and, and background. And, and the results uh, speak for themselves. I mean, in 1965, I think something like 9% of African-Americans in Mississippi, a state with a considerable black population, only 9% were registered to vote. Uh, by 1970, five years later, it's something like two-thirds of African-Americans in the state. I mean, it is a radical transformation, not just in the rights of African-Americans, but of course, it reshapes all of American politics uh, as you as you start to see kind of a resorting uh, of the parties in this period. Uh, the modern Republican Party, I think, is re- reshaped by this as much as the modern Democratic Party is. And then we've got the Great Society. And so the Great Society is the phrase, is speechwriter's phrase that he, he uses as a incredibly, I mean, it, it seems hugely utopian. And the way that he often talked about it was, you know, he was dreaming big dreams. If he was dreaming big dreams in front of Congress and when he was demanding the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, he was doing it in an even grander scale when he was sketching out this vision for a, a great society. For half a century, we called upon unbounded invention and untiring enders to create an order of plenty for all of our people. The challenge of the next half century is whether we have the wisdom to use that wealth to enrich and elevate our national life and to advance the quality of our American civilization. We have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. Mark, I mean, where does he get the the self-confidence, the political capital? Where where does it come from, that idea that you can kind of re-engineer society? What was he actually trying to do? He had this grandiose term. What was the substance behind it, and how did he think he could possibly make it work? The language is so sweeping from that 1964 speech in, in Ann Arbor, right? He's talking not only about material progress, but also almost like aesthetic and spiritual progress, you know, that the American society was poised to, to, to make in the, in the coming era. It's, it's quite remarkable language, the likes of which we very rarely heard, it seems to me, across American history. How to explain that? I mean, one way to explain that, I think, is to recognize that, look, the base of support for this set of ideas was what went far beyond Lyndon Johnson himself. This was an era in which a lot of these ideas really did have traction. Um, And, you know, that this really was the apex of liberalism in in, in the post-war context of of, uh, American history, where a lot of these ideas that seem so, you know, head-scratchingly unpopular now really did have a lot of traction. And the other key ingredient, I think, is just the incredible prosperity of this time, which made all things seem possible to Americans. Uh, After all, just, you know, 15... 20 years before Americans had sent 16 million soldiers, you know, around the world to fight this multi-front war. There seemed to be almost nothing beyond the capacity 
of the United States to accomplish. And then you layer on top of that just the, the most extraordinary prosperity I think you could argue that the world had ever seen in its history um, in, enables people to think, well, there's really nothing that's beyond this the, the, the capabilities of this nation in the material realm. But hey, even in the kind of spiritual and aesthetic realm as well, we can really perfect this society by building on the New Deal, yes, but really taking it to the next level, not only quantitatively, but but also qualitatively. Yeah, that's so well put, Mark. And I mean, we cannot overemphasize really the significance of this moment in world history where the, the United States is at the absolute apex of its power. No country, not the British Empire at its peak in 1860 or 1870, whatever, no country in, in, in the modern world has come anywhere close to the level of dominance the United States had and the, 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 the material resources that it had uh, available at, at this moment. In that sense, LBJ was, was president at the most enviable moment, wasn't it? When it didn't feel in this realm like hard choices had to be made. It seemed like if you dreamed a dream, you could make it happen. If you wanted a nuclear bomb, you could make a nuclear bomb. If you wanted to end (laughs) poverty, you could surely end poverty. But Kevin... What happened next? I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you kind of summarize the the kind of the legislative the legislative next steps to kind yeah. of implement great society programs? And you'd already talked about his kind of concern with his kind of batting average. There was, a, you know, there was a lot of legislation um, was was passed, especially yeah. in the, at the beginning of his of his second term. Um, what what kinds of things did it do, and how did it actually work out on the ground? Well, I mean, so he comes into this moment uh, of, of re-election and, and comes in with huge margins in Congress. And even if we discount the conservative Southern Democrats, it's still about a, a, what, a two-to-one majority in both houses the Democrats have. He's got the wind at his back. Uh, he's already come off the successes of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the uh, uh, Equal Opportunity Act of 64. Two huge uh, uh, changes. And hits the ground running. And in the first six months of, uh, of 1965, I think they have like, what, 88 bills or something going up to, to Congress and 85 get passed. If you just go with the uh, kind of the biggest hits of that, we're talking about uh, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, two things which uh, didn't uh, finally get America to uh, full national health insurance, but took care of two of the most vulnerable groups, uh, senior citizens uh, and, and the poor. We've got aid to education. Uh, the elementary uh, uh, end of that didn't work out well, but the Higher Education Act revolutionizes the way in which uh, a, a college uh, accessibility uh, uh, hits the country. We've got the Immigration Act of 1965, uh, undoing the kind of uh, uh, racist immigration restrictions of the 1920s and really uh, transforming the country almost as much as the Civil Rights Act itself. And so on and on. Uh, there's a variety of uh, programs here which really do... Uh, fundamentally reshape the country. And it's because of this moment, both politically, he's got uh, a huge edge. He's coming with a landslide win and big margins in Congress. But as you noted, economically, there's a sense that the country is steadily expanding. And all they have to do is uh, get more people into this booming economy, let that booming economy uh, uh, help uh, uh, raise everyone else uh, around the country, and that there would be no hard choices. There's no sense in uh, LBJ's uh, term of office, that there's a trade-off. His enemies see this as a zero-sum game, that every gain for African-Americans or the poor is coming at the expense of, say, the white working class. That's not how LBJ sees it. It really is a kind of a, a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, to use that cliche. Uh, that's the way in which he sees uh, the country working. And uh, for the short term, at least, it seems like he might be right. Kevin, some of the more optimistic uh 
Liberal commentators, supporters of the uh, current president have uh, made uh, optimistic comparisons between Biden's legislative successes over the last uh, 18 months and and uh, Johnson's legislative successes in 1965. How would you compare the two? Is there anything close to Great Society 2.0? It's not quite Great Society. It's, I think, a lot more than I think many uh, Americans would have assumed Biden would be capable of, particularly given the uh, the dire uh, political climate he's in. I mean, a razor-thin majority in the Senate, nothing like the, the comfortable margins he had. Uh, completely they, different political context. Completely different. Completely different. I think you're absolutely right that the political eras in which LBJ and now Joe Biden were president are vastly different. In LBJ's era, both parties were big tents, right? They they included very different uh, factions with within them. I think LBJ's main skill as a politician was as a coalition builder. And yes, of course, he used those formidable persuasive techniques, the Johnson treatment, as it's sometimes called, to build those coalitions. But the, the, the point is, I think that those coalitions were relatively available to him. It was simply an easier task, a much easier task to build coalitions within parties and, and across parties than it is in 2023. If we calculate the degree of difficulty here, I think Biden has actually done more in this moment than LBJ did with the tremendous moment he had uh, in 65. In terms of their accomplishments, I think, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and things like that are, are still much, much bigger. But in terms of, of what they've been able to do in an adverse climate, uh, I've been pretty impressed with the Biden administration so far. And for some of the same sorts of reasons, it, would it be fair to say? I mean, the fact that Biden has deep experience on Capitol Hill, just as Johnson did, that he knows what yeah. kind of legislation is going to work, how to deal with the process, how to how to exert pressure at the right moment. Yeah. And with with Biden, it's it's I mean, he's got the ability, he's got the understanding of the way in which the Senate works and operates. Some of that's outdated. I think he has a, a little bit of a too much of a nostalgia for bipartisanship that's not quite there anymore. But LBJ worked in a bipartisan way very, very effectively, much, but very he much. had liberal Republicans from New yeah, England exactly. yeah. more than willing to exactly support right. his legislation. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the ideological sorting of the parties has made it much more difficult to be bipartisan. But Biden's real strength, uh, and I'm someone who, who underestimated him uh, before uh, the, the, he, he became president, uh, but Biden's real strength, if you look back at his career, is he has an uncanny ability to find the exact dead center of a Democratic caucus and stake out a position there, right? And so that means he is always right in the middle, which leads to this ability to kind of create uh, broader coalitions. But also he's kind of got his finger on the pulse of where the party is. But also that makes him, I think, a little, uh, just as LBJ was on civil rights, he sees where trends are moving and moves with them. And so that's why I think he was more out front on, say, gay rights and gay marriage than even Obama was at the time. Uh, he, he really understood where the party was moving and moved with it. And so I think uh, that uh, shows a bit of uh, political flexibility, which I think is, a, is akin to LBJ. One of Biden's strengths right now is that somehow or other he seems to maybe be the only person in the Democratic Party who can transcend the so-called culture wars, right? Because you know, of his age, his demeanor or whatever. I mean, nobody thinks that Biden could name all 114 genders or whatever, or that he's even interested in the question or that he wants to engage with it at all. And that enables him, I think it seems to me that's one of his kind of secret sources, is that it enables him to do old-fashioned democratic things like focus on 
social justice and education and 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 all of the things that the federal money has gone into in the in the recent legislative change i i wonder if in that in that respect there is a there is a kind of parallel with 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 lbj i mean in the end lbj his career ended in failure but it seems odd in a way to think about lbj as a 1960s president in some respects right because i mean he doesn't he didn't dress like people in the 1960s are supposed to dress he didn't speak that language i mean he wasn't kind of down with the kids he didn't move with the times he wasn't you know i what do you think of that is there some kind of <laughs> is there some kind of comparison there yeah i think so i mean LBJ was able to move so well on civil rights because of who he seemed to be. He was an older Southern Democrat, right? Who had, who, who could speak about his rural roots in Texas, who could speak, uh, you know, authoritatively about that past and yet still pivot. With, with Biden, the fact that he's this uh, very clearly this, uh, you know, EC Scranton Joe, uh, who I think you're right. Uh, when they try to throw the culture war stuff at him, he just kind of come on mans them and, and it bounces off. Uh, and I think that identity uh, uh, has shielded him uh, the same way in which uh, uh, LBJ's identity uh, shielded him a, a generation before. And I think it, he's maybe not alone in this, but I do think he's uh, uniquely positioned um, at this moment. Uh, and his his status as, uh, you know, uh, this kind of almost timeless Democratic figure has uh, is, is kind of helped him uh, resist the tides at the moment. Mark, I mean, you've written a lot about uh, Vietnam um, and American foreign policy in general, but Vietnam, and you've thought a lot about how uh, the United States got into that situation and um, what its consequences have been. Um, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the big question in my mind is really just to try to get my, what I don't, what I really don't understand is did Johnson, did basically, did, Big question in my mind is, did Johnson really know what he was doing? Was this, was this a kind of quagmire? Other people were making decisions, men on the ground, other people in the Defense Department, Robert McNamara, Defense Secretary, whoever. Other people making decisions, and Johnson was paying attention to other things, and before he realized what had happened, he'd got to a stage where he felt like there was no exit route. Yep. Is that what happened? Or was it that Johnson studied the material in front of him and took a conscious decision that notwithstanding the obvious risks, mm -hmm. notwithstanding the question of whether there was a clear exit strategy, right. he felt that the threat of the communists in Vietnam was so pressing that this was a confrontation that he could not duck not just because he was a big guy in his masculine honor and all that yeah. but because of a cool assessment of american interests yeah. and that no matter what was happening at home no matter civil rights and great society and all these grand ambitions he could have at home if he lost globally in this existential battle for freedom against communists as he may have thought of it then the rest of it was worth nothing which of which of those is more right? <laughs> I, th I think there's no question that the, the the second of your two options is is more right. We have abundant evidence now that LBJ was keenly aware of the problems that the United States that he personally would face in Vietnam if he chose 
escalation. There's no question he was locked in on the fact that if this, if victory was possible at all, it would come only after great expenditure of effort and probably over a long period of time. He was well aware that voices in Congress, in his own administration, the voices of foreign leaders were cautioning, cautioning him against escalation because they too were aware of the risk that the United States would run by getting in deeper and deeper. So absolutely, it was a choice um, made despite knowledge of the very problems that would become so profoundly disabling to uh, LBJ as time advanced. So then, of course, the question is, OK, why does he do it anyway? And uh, there, I think there are two there are two answers. One is that, you know, LBJ, for all of his ability to think creatively about domestic policy, was really not a very creative thinker, I think, when it came to foreign policy. He had come of age during the early decades of, well, during the Second World War and then the formative years of the Cold War, and readily imbibed kind of basic assumptions about the Cold War, about the need to contain communist expansion wherever it threatened, anywhere around the world. And what he did in Vietnam, I think, was to apply very simplistic ideas about how the world worked. And then I think the other very important factor factor to bear in mind is the one you were getting at in your question. He also made um, a, a calculation that he had to stand tall in Vietnam. He had to prevent defeat minimally in Vietnam in order to preserve his political viability on the home front um, in, in a way that would enable him to get his most cherished uh, objectives, which were, of course, all about the great society and, and the domestic reform projects that, that, that were really at the heart of, of his ambitions as president. I mean, how would you as a, as a historian go about uh, the, the task of trying to balance these two things? On yeah. the one hand, these great domestic accomplishments of the, the great society and the, the civil rights and Voting Rights Act, and on the other hand, everything that flowed from the consequences of the of Vietnam War. What do you do with that in terms of making a final assessment of LBJ? Well, I think you've got to weigh both of them together. There's no doubt that without Vietnam, LBJ would stand as a kind of progressive icon today. Uh, and I think he would be uh, beloved uh, by liberals and, and the left alike. But for many, especially in the older generation who lived through the war, uh, the conduct on Vietnam is, is unforgivable. Uh, and so... Uh, you've got to take the good and the bad uh, together there. Um, uh, and the, I think maybe the problem is that LBJ uh, made this more complicated for us by trying to do both at once. Uh, I think he looked at his hero FDR who had had great domestic reforms and then won a world war and thought, well, I'll do both of those, but at the same time. Uh, and that was uh, certainly a, a complicating problem. Uh, he later realized uh, that Vietnam, uh, that bitch of a war, as he called it, killed the only lady I love, the Great Society. I think if he'd known there would be a trade-off, uh, he would have steered out of Vietnam. I think much like if you were talking about comparisons to Biden, it's remarkable. Uh, uh, Biden's real successes have been uh, in foreign policy, uh, in uh, getting out of Afghanistan. He's right at this moment. Uh, they're unwinding uh, the AUMF, whereas Johnson had the blank check from Gulf of Tonkin, which kept getting him in trouble. Uh, Biden is turning that check back to Congress and, and telling tell him to, to rip it up. So that's a remarkable change. With our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country.
Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. On the 31st of March 1968, Lyndon Johnson made this shock announcement. It may not have been a shock to everybody, but it, it had a huge political, it was a political bombshell. How would it come to that? Why did he feel compelled, this man who'd spent his whole career uh, desperate oh. for power, why did he give it all away? There are broadly two lines of, of argument. One, and his health. LBJ was keenly aware that Johnson men had died in their, in their 60s, and he was keenly aware of his own advancing age. I mean, he was only 64 when he passed away, but he was well aware that he had had a massive heart attack in the mid-1950s and that um, longevity might simply, his simple ability to survive another presidential term might be a problem. But to me, the old answer, the answer that's been out there for decades is still the one that works best. Vietnam had destroyed his political effectiveness, and he worried about his ability uh, to get the nomination, to win the presidency, and to serve effectively as president through another term. It was a decision about his his political future and his despair over uh, where his presidency uh, lay in the early months of 1968. And of course, the Tet Offensive, the, the, the extreme economic difficulties that, that began to emerge in February and March of 1968. And then I think most importantly, the primary challenges from Eugene McCarthy and ultimately Bobby Kennedy really pushed him over the edge to make that announcement. And McCarthy and, and Bobby Kennedy were running on anti-war platforms. But of course, the man who in the end got the Democratic nomination was 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 Hubert Humphrey, yes. uh, LBJ's vice president, and the man who won, Richard Nixon, although he said he had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, was certainly not a part of the anti-war movement. Right. Uh, and so, what if, hypothetical question mark, yeah. let's just imagine LBJ hadn't made that announcement on the 31st of March, and let's just say that just like, just as Hubert Humphrey won in the end with the help of the Democratic machine, let's just assume, and it probably is the case, mm-hmm that Johnson would have beaten out Bobby Kennedy in the end and just clinched the nomination, albeit in traumatic circumstances. Would he have been a better Democratic candidate against Richard Nixon than Hubert Humphrey? Might he, in fact, have won in 1968 and the whole course of American history would therefore have been different? I I don't (laughs) think so. I think that LBJ was so badly damaged by the war that he would have been a weaker candidate than Hubert Humphrey. Let's remember, after all, that Hubert Humphrey, in the waning days before the election in 1968, did find ways to distance himself from LBJ's policy on Vietnam. And this seems to have boosted Humphrey in the polls. You know, LBJ would have been anchored to LBJ's policy in a way that would have made it very difficult for him to adjust with respect to the war, unless, of course, he had pulled off some sort of peace deal or something like that in the run-up to the election, which I suppose is 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 always possible. Um, But assuming no major breakthroughs on the war, I think that um, it's very difficult to see a path to LBJ uh, uh, winning in, in 1968, because I think Nixon would have had the more persuasive argument about the war. And also, let's recall uh, about law and order and other themes on the domestic front, which were very, very powerful um, uh, by November 1968. In which case, he probably made the right decision to not run again. I think that's probably right. 
It's sometimes tempting to think of Joe Biden as the, as the last representative of an old-style Democratic Party, and he is a representative of the New Deal coalition that you were talking about earlier. He's the white northern ethnic, blue-collar. Uh, are there, what lessons would you, do you think that Joe Biden should and perhaps has learned from the liberal experience of Lyndon Johnson? We've often talked about the Vietnam syndrome for American presidents, uh, uh, you know, uh, whether it was Reagan going to Grenada or, or Bush to Panama to try to, you know, uh, uh, get a win over a small country to, to shake that off or, or Desert Storm or Iraq as, uh, as, as being in the shadow of that. Uh, but I think Biden, more than any president, really learned the lesson of Vietnam, which is uh, uh, long entanglements, uh, uh, open-ended uh, uh, authorization uh, is not a thing a president should want. Uh, and that this is actually a, a trap which can drag you down. And I think he did all he could to extricate himself from that in a way in which LBJ, I think in retrospect, would have loved to have done. I think in the arena of foreign affairs, it's easiest to see the, the possibilities that uh, Joe Biden may have learned something from the 1960s. Uh, Biden seems to be acutely aware of the limits of American power. And I think nowhere is this clearer than in the case of Afghanistan, which promised to drag down the Biden presidency and other presidencies uh, still to come. Of course, uh, Joe Biden has shown himself all too willing to stand tough in the in, in the international arena when it came to the Russia-Ukraine episode. And uh, many people, I think, would say that this has been Joe Biden at its very best. Here, too, I think we can uh, find a lot to like in Joe Biden in the sense that he seems willing to uh, distinguish between the most essential American interests abroad and the more peripheral uh, and expendable American uh, efforts abroad. So uh, the same president has cut American losses in Afghanistan and really doubled down in Ukraine, I think, on a clear-eyed assessment that, look, the United States can't do everything in the world. So where we really need to focus are the places where it really, really, really matters. And he's made uh, a decision, I think, uh, understandably, in my view, that the Ukraine is a place that uh, really does justify a strong American uh, objective. So I think there is something that flows from the 1960s about this kind of, of, of behavior. In the domestic arena, Biden is uh, at heart the same type of coalition builder that LBJ was. And I think he understands um, uh, the need to be creative, to cobble together coalitions, to get legislation that may not be perfect, but once it's on the books can be perhaps perfected over time, perhaps by future Congresses and future presidencies. It's sometimes just getting the marker down uh, on an issue of, of great importance is a very, very important first step. And I think that LBJ had very much that same mentality. He recognized that all of the legislation under the banner of the Great Society was hardly perfect, but that getting something on the books in, in many cases represented an important first step. I was speaking there to Mark Lawrence of the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, and the Princeton historian Kevin Cruz. LBJ is a hard president to sum up. He was a man of paradoxes, a white southerner who threw all his authority into getting Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, a believer in the power of the federal government to improve people's lives, who in the end sacrificed his domestic reform agenda to pursue a bloody war in Southeast Asia. His dream of a great society was, in effect, one version of the ideal surely shared by Biden, that America is the last best hope. 
Yet LBJ's decision not to run again was a recognition of his ultimate political failure. How Biden's decision to run will affect his legacy remains to be seen. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from the RAI at Oxford University. Our mission is to explain America and its place in the world, and you can see our programme of events and sign up for our newsletter by going to rai.ox.ac.uk or by following us on Twitter at RAI underscore Oxford. Our producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. Goodbye.